you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, City on a Hill. I want to add my uh, weight, if there is any, to the uh, goodness of compassion, because I've witnessed firsthand this morning the real uh, Jesus hope they have in life, because they put a kid on each seat in the front row, expecting that there would be people sitting in the front row. Uh, So I think we need that hope, that power of Jesus working in us this morning. So I'm going to pray for us as we get into God's Word. Pray with me. Lord, uh, thank you for being here with us. Thank you that you are at work amongst us. We thank you for your Word this morning. We pray that as we gather together and get into your Word, that you would indeed be at work, that you would be using your Word to impact our lives, to change us, that we wouldn't leave here the same that we came in. We pray you would do a mighty work amongst us this morning, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in my home, uh, we have a bookcase. It's an IKEA bookcase, uh, and it stood the test, or our marriage, I should say, stood the test of the uh, IKEA flat pack of putting it together. Uh, And the bookcase itself has stood the test of time. It's still there, it's still standing or hanging on the wall, and it's done its job. It's, uh, it's been fruitful. It's now full of books, full, full to the point that uh, we now have a rule in my house that if I buy a new book, I have to get rid of an old one before this new one can enter the house. But uh, one of my favorite authors on the bookshelf is a British guy called Geoffrey Archer. He's uh, a novelist, writes uh, fantasy novels, and the thing that I like about his stories is the intertwining, twisting nature of the tales that begin separately, but by the end uh, uh, come together in a collective one story. And as we get into our passage today, I want to work through with you three short stories uh, that come together to tell one big, greater story by the end. So, the first one in our three this morning is called The Invalid and the Pool. The Invalid and the Pool. And as we get into this, as we start reading our passage, we're hit straight away with some uh, specific details of where our scene is set. And as we take in these details, as you read the uh, moments or the description of this setting, I want you to keep in mind John's purpose for this book. Dave uh, introduced this series to us last week brilliantly in his uh, sermon on the turning water into wine, and he highlighted this uh, purpose that John had. In John 20, 31, he says, I've written this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These details at the start of our passage today are like little reminders that this is an incredible, uh, that, th- that this incredible event you're about to witness actually happened. And not only did it really happen, you know where it happened. There's a detail to the location, Jerusalem, the Sheep Gate, the five-roofed colonnades. Think about it in terms of if I described a pool to you, and I said there's a pool in Geelong where something happened. You might have a bit of an idea, you might be able to guess where we're talking about. 
But if I set the pool in Geelong down at Eastern Beach, you've got a bit closer, you've narrowed it down, but I say the pool down at Eastern Beach that the kids swim in, then you know the exact location of where I'm talking about. John is saying to his readers, you know where this place is. You know where this took place. Go and see it for yourself. Go and speak to people who have heard for themselves about this event that took place. I am telling you this story so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So at this pool called Bethesda, we find what verse 3 describes as a multitude of invalids. Blind, lame, paralyzed, all at this pool because they believe for one reason or another that they will find healing there. There are a few different thoughts as to why this belief was apparent, but essentially the people there believed that if, I, if they were the first to enter into the pool when the waters were stirred up, they'd be healed of whatever disease they had. So in this passage, we're introduced to a location and then we meet a person. A person. All we're initially informed of about this person is that he's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. We also know from his encounter with the religious leaders later on that uh, this guy is a Jewish man. So I want you to imagine this scene with me. Imagine this scene that John is setting up. This man is at a potentially pagan cult site, but has come to a point in his life where he just wants to be well. He just wants to feel better, and he's willing to try anything to get there. Picture his surroundings, because this is not our kiddie pool down at Eastern Beach with the sun shining and squeals of laughter filling the air. This is a dark hole in the ground surrounded by cries of anguish. Concrete steps filled with the blind, lame, and paralyzed. People with no one to care for them and no one who would remember them. Outcasts that society has forgotten and who feel like God has forgotten them. This man at the pool was an outcast in society left by a pool with not even a person to help him into the water. But Jesus saw him. Not only did he see him, but read in verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there and knew, and knew that he had been there a long time. Jesus knew this man's situation without, being, uh, without needing to be told about it, and he was going to do something about it. Do you want to be healed? Jesus asks the man. Do you want to be healed? Remember, as we look at this man's response, that this is fairly early on in Jesus' ministry when this encounter is taking place, and uh, his reputation that will eventually precede him hasn't developed as much yet. So the sick man answers him, we read in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. 
The man calls Jesus sir, not Lord or Rabbi, that are titles that will develop later on, because there's no relationship yet between this man and Jesus. He shows no even indication of thinking that Jesus is anyone special and might be able to do something about this. He simply tells him of his situation and what he needs. And in some way, this isn't too surprising, right? This man probably spends the majority of his life down at the pool. He's not getting visitors to fill him in on the the current events of the day. And yet, there has been word of Jesus getting around. There is the start of a reputation developing. In the second sign recorded in John's account, just one chapter earlier than we're in today, there was an official who had a son who was about to die. He as well didn't know exactly who Jesus was, but he had heard enough, heard enough about who he was and what he had been doing to, uh, when, once he heard that Jesus was in town, he reached out to him to see if there was something that he could do about it. For the paralyzed man, and actually all the people at the pool there with him, they were so fixated on the waters as the solution to their problems, they couldn't see what was right in front of them. And so how does Jesus respond to this? He's asked this man a pretty straightforward question. The response he's got is just a summary of the situation this man is facing and why a positive response to Jesus' question is just not even possible. So what does Jesus say? How is Jesus going to respond and interact with this guy? Well, verse 8, we find out, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked, just like that. Just like that. We learned of Jesus' knowledge of his people as he entered the pool and encountered this man, and now we experience his power. Jesus said it plain and simply, and it was done. Done at once. The power of Jesus is immediate and sovereign. Where he had shown power over the elements in the water and wine sign, here he shows that at his word, diseased bone and muscles obey. Imagine the feeling of this man for a moment as he walks for the first time in 38 years, the first steps, maybe he does a leap in joy, maybe he's doing a little jig if he can dance better than me, or maybe, maybe he's a little bit more apprehensive, he's not sure about what's going on, he's kind of fumbling around a little bit, holding onto walls like a roller skater going around a rink for the first time, but we actually, actually don't know what his reaction was, because even though we might expect at this stage of the story to to hear about the elation that this man felt, the celebration that ensued, the stories that were shared, instead, we get a full stop. A full stop and then another detail. Verse 8 continues, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Full stop. And then, now that day was the Sabbath. 
It's odd, right? So this abrupt turn in the tale takes us into our next chapter, the Jews and the mat. Read with me as this continues into verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Let me just point out at the start here that when John uses the word Jews in this passage, it's not a general term for a random group of Jewish people, but referring to the Jewish religious uh, leaders. And right from our introduction with these religious leaders, we are confronted with their obsession. Where we found the invalids at the pool fixated on the waters, here we find the religious leaders obsessing over rule. Even after that abrupt about face in our narrative to introduce the idea of the Sabbath, Sabbath, there's still a glimmer of hope that maybe we're about to get to celebrate. Maybe we're about to get to that celebration scene. The leaders encounter this man who's newly able to walk, and they're about to say something. We wait with eager anticipation for words of celebration, but instead we're slapped with a condemnation of rebuke. What makes this all the more frustrating is that the law these leaders are confronting this newly walking man with is not even a biblical law. In an attempt to regulate what the practical observation of the Sabbath looked like, the Jewish leaders had had come up with a whole extra set of rules outside of the law that dictated what a person could and couldn't do on this Sabbath day. These extra rules went to the extent of what did and didn't constitute work. Uh, It went from detailing where you could and couldn't spit your saliva so that didn't accidentally fall on some soil and you stepped in it because that would be counted as cultivating the soil, Uh, to not being able to carry a handkerchief but you could wear one. So if you were In the situation where you needed to get a handkerchief from downstairs to upstairs, you couldn't pick it up and hold it down the way, but you could tie it around your neck or around your hair, walk down, take it off, leave it on the table, and that was okay. You're all good in that situation. So this is where our character in the story has found himself. Carrying his mat was considered work and therefore was a big no-no. It's this response that illustrates the perils of legalism. The spirit of a legalistic attitude fights against and robs of joy. Legalists are unable to celebrate because they're stuck in observing. The thought, even the thought of rejoicing at the overflow of grace extended to this man was not even a flicker on their radar because a rule on their list had been violated. Kent Hughes is a commentator and he puts this incredibly well when he says, the gospel for legalists says, for God so loved the world that he gave a list that whosoever might do the things on the list might have eternal life. (laughs) 
these leaders weren't interested in grace. They wanted rules. They wanted human merit. They wanted to be able to measure themselves on what they and others could or couldn't do. It's worth taking a moment, though, I think, to ease off on the Jewish leaders a little bit. Because I think they get a bit of a bad rap. When you oppose Jesus, it's probably inevitable that you're going to end up on that side. But I think we can fall into the trap of distancing ourselves from their actions and attitudes too quickly. Because are we not the same in falling into the trap of believing that it's just much easier easier to assess ourselves against a set of standards and accepting that God really accepts us as we are. We ask questions like, but what about if I do this? And what if I had done that? Or what if my past contains this? We ask questions like that over rejoicing in the simplicity that God welcomes sinners into a life of sanctification. We know with our minds that we're saved by grace, but because of our human tendencies, we want to create lists that make us feel more comfortable. One of my favorite songs is a song called The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, And there's a refrain throughout the song that uh, says, I'll be fine once I get it. I'll be fine once I get it. Even though he knows that all that glitters isn't gold, he'll be fine if he gets this thing until he's not. And the, the song ends in silence as there's a bit of a crash towards its culmination. There's got to be a better way than that. There's got to be a better way than chasing after the one thing or following after a list of rules that we make for ourselves. There's got to be a better way than that. I want us to see if we can discover that in our final chapter, Jesus and the Sabbath. Jesus and the Sabbath. If you recall in verse 10, you'll remember that our healed man didn't know who Jesus was yet. Didn't really know who this man was that had come to him and confronted him with this question. And when the religious leaders confront him with their accusations, he attempts to pass the buck by referring to Jesus as as just the man who healed me. As we continue on in the passage, though, we see him being pressed for further information. So read with me from verse 11. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. We have an advantage on the Jewish religious leaders because we've read this account from verse 1. So we knew that it was Jesus who had done the work, but now the religious leaders have also been filled in. But we also get to find out some extra details about what is going on here. We discover the reason the healed man couldn't immediately identify Jesus to the religious leaders is because that Jesus had withdrawn from the crowd, uh, withdrawn because there was a crowd in this place. Why would Jesus do that? Think back to our scene and where we initially found this man. 
a pool where he was not alone, but surrounded by a multitude of invalids, all suffering the same as he was. I think it's pretty, uh, or not too hard to work out that if Jesus had have stayed around, there would have been a chaotic scramble for his services, right? As soon as there was a whisper of what had happened, we can imagine a Boxing Day sale-esque rush to be next in line for their case to be heard. So it's worth asking, if Jesus could have done that, if he could have healed all these people, and he's just shown he does have the power to do that, Why didn't he? Why not just heal everybody there? Well, the other detail we learn through these next verses sheds some light as we discover that the healing that has taken place, the work that Jesus has done with this man is not his main objective. After the man's initial interaction with the religious leaders has taken place, Jesus seeks him out and has an instruction for him. See, you have been made well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This statement has had a debated and contested meaning. Is Jesus saying that the man was an invalid because he had sinned, so he shouldn't do it again because something else even worse might happen to him? Well, we know that our sin has real-world consequences here and now. We're going to deal with this exact issue in three weeks' time when we get to John 9 and we encounter uh, Jesus healing the man born blind. I will give you a sneak preview, though. Jesus completely shuts down the idea that all disease is a result of personal sin. So we don't actually know why this man has been an invalid for 30 years, but that's not the point that Jesus wants us to wrestle with when he instructs this man. The words he uses are carefully crafted, and when he says, see, you have been made well, there's a permanent implication for his physical state in the way that he says this to the man. Your physical state, you need not worry about anymore. You have been made well. And so as he continues on, Jesus is telling the man, but that's not your main concern. You had been fixated on the waters to heal you and to solve all your problems, but you have a bigger problem. There are bigger problems to deal with than your physical limitations and your focus should be on the future. Jesus tells the man, I have healed you. I have given you this free gift, not that you might return to your old mindset of seeking fulfillment and satisfaction outside of God, but instead you would sin no more by turning back to God and see that all you are seeking can be found in Him. And it's at this point where our stories, where our chapters really begin to tie together. Because Jesus could have done this sign anytime he wanted, right? Seven days in the week, long days, can get lots done, but Jesus chooses the Sabbath. He deliberately chooses to heal this man on the Sabbath. But what's the big deal about that? 
Why did John include such an abrupt detail in his narrative when we were ready to party at what had just occurred? Why is it such a big deal for the religious leaders to have come up with a whole list of extra rules to be observed on this particular day? When God instituted the Sabbath through the giving of the law at Sinai, it was to reflect the Sabbath rest of God. The people of God were to set aside time to practice it, with it also being a foreshadowing of the rest that awaited them in the future. But we need to recognize that rest is more than recovery from being weary. Rest is more than recovery from being weary. When we look at the seventh day of creation and see that, uh, see the moment that this is based on, we see God resting after he had completed six days of, cre- of creating work. What we aren't seeing here, though, is God's taking some time out to recover from the nine to five of setting the stars in the sky and putting humans together. On the seventh day, God entered into Sabbath rest, and he is still in that rest, even while he is upholding the earth with his power. He works and he remains in his Sabbath rest. His rest was based not on recovery, but on the reality that his creation work had been set and his plan for eternal relationship with his creation had been set in motion to ultimately be fulfilled. His rest was based on the confidence of knowing how this story was going to end. Jesus says to the healed man, I have healed you that you might see there is something more, something more to your life than physical well-being. I have overcome your sickness to show you I want to overcome sin. There are plenty of things we do to help us switch off, to refresh, to rejuvenate. Helpful things, but the rest that Jesus offers is a deeper soul rest. To truly rest is to know that we are saved by the work of Jesus in overcoming sin, and that impacts our whole lives. There's not a list to follow, but a person. When we're desperate, when we're confused, when we feel like the invalid at the pool and we're just out of hope, we lean not on our own understanding. We forgo the worldly comforts that go against his word. In the good and in the bad, we turn to Jesus and follow him. Rest is not a moment we seek or a time that we observe, but a lifestyle we live and a person we trust in. When Jesus' work in overcoming was complete on the cross and he rose again, the foreshadowing of the rest that the Sabbath observation reflected was no longer needed. In that work, in that work, we have all the information we now need to know how the story ends. To truly rest is to know that we are saved by the work of Jesus in overcoming sin. To allow that to impact our entire lives. To recognize that rest is not a moment we seek out or a time we observe, but a lifestyle we live and a person we trust in.
as we close our time together today, I want you to read a quote, I want to read you a quote from a lady named Helen Sternberg. Uh, Helen's son, Brian, was a record, a world record holding pole vaulter. During training one day, uh, Brian was on the trampoline performing a move he'd uh, performed or completed successfully hundreds of times, but unfortunately on this day, uh, he landed awkwardly on his neck and the result of the fall was permanent quadriplegia. In this quote, Helen perfectly sums up the lifestyle being commended to us by Jesus today. She says this, No one in Brian's condition has ever walked. No one. Yet we still believe. I have no idea when God will heal Brian. It's conceivable this particular battle will not be won here on earth. Some people you pray for are healed. Some aren't in this world. But that doesn't change God's desire for wholeness, body, mind, and spirit. We won't give up. We're like doctors searching for a cure. We won't stop investigating. We think it pleases God for us to persevere. Helen Sternberg knows the pain and the struggles of this life, that they're real, that they're difficult, that they're hard. But she knows the end of the story. She knows there is something greater to hope in, and she continues on. Because there's a danger in taking an attitude of knowing how the story ends that results in us thinking it doesn't really matter what we do. But that could not be further from the truth. Knowing everything you have been given is a gift from God to point you to something more. You go your hardest, dream big dreams, fight to achieve your goals. But in the achievement, in the wrestle, in the pursuit that goes alongside that, we rest in the knowledge of how the story ends. In the knowledge of the work of the one who knows you, who knows your ultimate need and has demonstrated his power to overcome it. The rest of the people, or the rest available to the people of God is no longer a day to be observed, but a resurrection to be celebrated. No longer a day set aside for him, but a life that belongs to him. The question Jesus asked the invalid man that day at the pool, do you want to be healed, is being asked of us today. Asked with just the, the slightest variation because we're on the other side of the cross in human history. Jesus looks to you today and says, do you want to rest? Are you tired from being on the never-ending treadmill that life provides? Of chasing after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, that even when we achieve it, that even when we have got that thing that glitters, we realize that it's not gold and it all starts over again. Do you want to rest? Whatever your retreat has looked like, whatever you have gone to when it all gets too much, whatever your fixation or obsession has been, 
rest in the knowledge of how this story ends and live in the freedom of knowing it's not about or not based on anything that you have, will, or can do, but on the work that Jesus has already done. Lord, we thank you for what you have achieved. Thank you for what you have done on the cross and in raising to new life. Thank you that in the knowledge of what you have done, we can rest, that we can live out our lives here on earth, looking forward to the day where we meet you face to face, but resting in the knowledge that that is secure. Lord, may we celebrate you through the lives we live, glorifying you, pointing to you, pointing to that there is something more than what we see here in front of us. Lord, as we wrestle with the struggle of that, as we wrestle with the struggle of day to day, would you be at work to us, to help us, to give us the peace and rest available in you. Work in us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.